Kimberly C. Paul. As I travel throughout each state, I realize that death is just a moment. It is how we live until that moment that matters. Finding connection with friends, family, and complete strangers. Journey with me. This is the Live Well, Die Well Tour. Well, thanks for joining me and thanks for being flexible. Um, last week was just a cluster in my life. And then I, the weekend was just the same because I turned 49. So I <laughs> uh, turned 49 for which year, the second or third year. <laughs> You're <laughs> funny. If, if, it, if it's, if it's truly only 49, then you've got nothing to worry about. It's oh. yeah. Yeah, I did my first time around 49, and I, I try to really lean into my age because I'm really proud that I uh, was born in 1971, where I, I part of this Generation X, where, uh-huh. you know, there was no technology, and we had to, we were still outside playing forts, you know, and I, I thought I had an enriched childhood because of not having technology um, until college. Uh, so, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to jump in. First okay. of all... Um, Jay, I, I really appreciate you taking time out and uh, spending this time with me. Uh, first of all, I saw the documentary you worked on with your father. I got to speak to your sister um, she last said week. She enjoyed that, yeah. Yeah, it was really, really cool. And I, frankly, I'm just head over heels for your dad. Um, he just came across as this shoot from the hit kind of person. And, uh, and I love those people. So tell us, you know, before we get really in depth with, with our conversation, you know, how did you become involved or interested in end of life? I'm, I'm assuming it's your father had a bit of influence. Absolutely. Go ahead. I was not aware really of the right to die movement or the death with dignity push or any of that until dad got prostate cancer and it metastasized and we knew his time was up and you know the saying many a truth set in jest and we're not into the guns by any means but there's an old uh, 32 semi-automatic that's been handed down it was a world war one piece and dad said one time well jay i think i'm going to take that 32 and go sit out on the end of the dock and uh, <laughs> and 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 I said, you don't want to do that because then I'll have to clean up the mess. And, <laughs> and we both laughed and that evolved into a, a discussion about how dad was going to go and the fact that he wasn't going to let cancer kill him slowly and painfully. So well, how, that, how, how long was that prior to his death? Um, the, the, dis- the discussion started a number of months, uh, many months before he, he actually died. Uh, and obviously long enough that we could uh, do a documentary film. And we interviewed uh, friends and family and dad uh, at length. And we had about 20 hours of interviews uh, that got cut down into 56 minutes of the documentary. So it, it was a good long period of time where uh, we, we pondered and dad planned. And of course, he wrote his own obituary with my help. Uh, that's the best way to do it. Then you get to say exactly what you want. Well, let's talk about that documentary because, you know, when I viewed it last week, it was, it looked like it was in the late nineties and it, I believe, man, this might be one of the first documentaries when it came to the subject matter, as well as just talking about end of life out 
there. So first of all, how, why did you even think of a documentary about this with your father? But how did this all evolve? And I mean, it's Live and Let Go, right? The documentary right. title? Right. Live and Let Go and American Death. And so and is, is it available for other people to watch? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a long story, a backstory on that, which really isn't all that relevant. Uh, it, we took it around to a number of, of film festivals after it was completed in, in 2001. And uh, we had quite a, a little bit of success. Uh, we even took it to Sundance before it was completely finished. And, of course, everybody likes to think the best, but we supposedly heard through the grapevine that we almost made it to the final cut. Woo, but, um, that's big. Uh, that's a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. If, if, if in fact that's true. And, uh, we, uh, then the, you know, I got on with my life after dad died and, and, uh, Jay Spain, uh, who's in Raleigh, uh, heads the communications group. He's a, a lifelong friend, uh, who did the, the directing and the filming. And, uh, we had no budget for this. And uh, I said, Jay, uh, dad's probably going to kill himself uh, because he doesn't want to die from cancer. And uh, he wants to make a statement. Dad felt very strongly about it as it came across in the movie. And uh, the thought was that I would write something because I'm a, a career journalist, uh, but I didn't want to do that. I'd have to write in the first person and I'm mm -hmm. too involved. I'd rather step back. So I said, Jay, I don't want to write it. Do you want to film it? But we can't pay you. And he said, count me in. So oh, all wow. we did, Gretchen, my sister Gretchen and I, we just paid uh, pocket expenses for him for the film and gas and that kind of stuff. So we had no budget. Uh, but Dad felt very strongly, uh, which comes across in the film, that he believed people should have the right to die when they want on their own terms. And, I love uh, that. And that, so to give you a little, to provide a little history for the listeners about your father, because he, he, he came across in the film as a storyteller. Uh, he he was, and he was a longtime newspaper guy. So tell me how your father had an impact on your life and also how he had an impact on making you very much aware of how he wanted to die and how that's impacting how you view, how perhaps it had an impact on how you might die. Well, obviously, you know, like they say, like father, like son. And, and it's ironic, too, because dad was you know, so generous. He also gave me his uh, prostate cancer. Oh, really? <laughs> well, you know that that's a very hereditary thing. Wow. And and so that we kind of, uh, it's it's funny. When I was diagnosed, uh, we were still working on the film. And um, so we went back and we interviewed me and said, uh, Jay, uh, what happens if you get the same thing as your dad? You're going to follow in his footsteps. And we planned that out. And the movie oh, could wow. have been the movie could have been about two uh, self deliverances, uh, my oh, father's wow. and my own. But fortunately, I'm still here, obviously. So uh, they got the cancer early enough, and I didn't have to follow in my dad's footsteps. But that would have been an interesting turn. But dad obviously had a great effect on me in my life, uh, in the way I am, the way I view life, with a kind of a, a realistic and uh, almost maverick uh, lens. Uh, dad said it like, uh, you know, he didn't sugarcoat anything. Um, I try not to, uh, I should sugarcoat more things probably. <laughs> I, I have more friends, but, uh, but when it comes to end of life and end of life issues, uh, I, I, I'm very much involved and, uh, I get, I get up in arms about it and also about prostate cancer. Heck, I, uh, I, I get, uh, people in the corner if they're over 40 and I said hey have you had your PSA checked 
uh, although I know that's controversial now a little bit. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a born again uh, uh, preacher when it comes to prostate cancer and also about the right to die. So dad had a huge effect on me and, and being with him, being privileged to be with him when he took his life, uh, just a, a month or two or three before the cancer did. Uh, that's probably a, a, one of the most important things I've ever done in life is to be there for my father. And Gretchen was there too as well. We had I, a we had a we have a brother, a younger brother, who did not want to be present. He didn't think he could handle it, but he supported Dad's decision. And of course, that came across in the film. Absolutely, well. it sure did. Yeah. It really did. Now, did. You know, you you spoke about your dad wanted to make a statement and and sort of uh, really help educate people on how he wanted to die and and instead of prolonging suffering in his mind's eye, he he chose this. But did when he when y'all were talking, did it was like, oh, I mean, we should film this or we should do this documentary or and how was that addressed with with him? Well, no, he knew from the beginning that what the plan was because Jay Spain, the director and photographer, uh, he, he knew dad well for years okay. and years. And, and that really uh, made the movie happen because if you bring in a stranger, you say, I go, I go hire a Smith Production Company to come in and shoot these interviews and film the death of my father and spend all these many hours together in the weeks and months ahead, it wouldn't be the same. You couldn't have a stranger doing that. But it worked so well because we had a dear close family friend of myself and my, my sister and my, my father. And so it was just like friends getting together. And uh, Jay Spain had the camera there. And uh, dad was well aware of it. And uh, it, yeah, it, it was an ideal situation for production, except we didn't have a lot of money. But I don't think that matters, really. No, it was a great, it was shot beautifully, and uh, the audio was great. Um, it, it, what, what really came across is that everyone did seem comfortable uh, about the subject. And, it, I mean, including your brother who chose not to be there, he, he believed in what your father was going to do, um, and he supported it, but he had the foresight to, to think that maybe that wasn't for him. Um, right. So what, how did this change how you want to face your end of life? How, and, and once you're, you experience this with your father, suddenly you, become this, you became this big spokesperson, person, and you're involved with so many things. And again, I have to mention, we're both in North Carolina right now. I'm sitting in my RV still in Raleigh, and you're uh -huh. in Pittsburgh, North Carolina, right outside of Chapel Hill. So, I mean, we're, we're really close, but because of COVID, we uh, decided to to maintain uh, it via video and, and audio. But so tell me how, how this has all changed how you feel and why was this a stepping stone for you to take more of an active role in educating people about their own end of life? Well, initially it was tied to the movie. When we would go to film festivals, we'd show it, we'd have a Q&A session. And uh, interestingly, the question and answers usually went on longer than the length of the film because people had so many things they wanted to know about how it came about and, you know, legal ramifications and personal in, input and things like that. Um, so that's how I got started. And uh, in 2000, we had the film almost finished and we were invited to the international, I think it's called World Federation of Right to Die Societies. They meet every couple of years and that was in Boston. 
people who believe in the right to die. They're organizations from all around the world. And we showed it at that, uh, that convention. And uh, I got to meet Faye Gersh there. One of the, uh, if, if Derek uh, Humphrey is the father of the North American right to die movement, Faye might be the, uh, the the mother of the right to die movement. And uh, Faye and I have remained friends since then. And now that I'm back in final exit network, uh, I talk to uh, Derek by email and uh, Faye uh, probably a couple times a month. So you talk about being blessed and privileged to work with people like that who are just legendary in the movement. And of course I've met so many other good people working with final exit network, but uh, how I got involved with them actually was kind of uh, by mistake, not by mistake, but by chance. Um, I moved back here to the, to the States two years ago this month after my wife died up in British Columbia. And I don't know if I mentioned that to you, maybe I did, but it was real interesting because uh, my wife, uh, she took the absolute opposite way to exit. She held on till the bitter end, and we spent 163 out of 165 of the last days in either the hospital or hospice. And boy, did I get a, a great uh, respect for hospice. They were great up there in British Columbia, as you well know about hospice. And um, she she hung on uh, praying uh, for a miracle till the very end. So I got to see a man die by choice because the end was near. And I got to see my wife hang on to the bitter end. And I've got to tell you, if I had a choice of which way it would be, I think you know which, which one I would opt for. Because uh, my wife, uh, she might have weighed half of her weight by the time she went, you know, maybe 70, 75 pounds. I don't know what she weighed, uh, but, you know, she was completely out of it and, and just not good at all. So that that's another, and that's recent. That's only about three years ago, uh, wow. less than three years ago. So I've got a, a different perspective and a new appreciation for dying with dignity and taking matters in your own hands if it's appropriate and when the time is right. So that's why I, I, I believe as firmly as I do about the movement and the right of people to choose. I mean, it's your own body. You should be able to own your own body. You know, I think you bring up a very valid point from a person that has seen different individuals that you've loved choose different ways to, to face end of life. First, your father, very bold. Um, and then your wife. Um, and you know what I found in my years with hospice? It's so easy for us to project the death we think others should want instead of listening. Because this whole medical aid in dying is really an, an additional choice. Mm-hmm. We want choices at the end of life just in case you want to make this um, an option for you. Now, of course, there's a lot of regulations and when it comes to dementia and things like that, but it is an added choice. Um, and I, be- I don't believe we're, because I, I totally support, I think we're on the same page when it comes to mm-hmm. medical aid and diet. You know, I'm not here to promote it, but I also am here to say that it's an option if it fits for you. So we're not we're not saying everyone needs to do this. We're just saying we feel it's an option that if you choose to look at it at your end of life this way, then it's it's fine to do that. And and it's it does a whole world of good, even if you don't uh, plan your own exit and do it, because about one third of all the people who receive uh, prescribed medication for the end of life, about one third never use it. 
It's it's uh, it's like an insurance policy. You have insurance for your RV and, and maybe on your life, and you hope you never have to put in a claim, but you feel a lot better because you have that insurance. That's exactly, that's exactly what that little vial of pills is. Sure. It's your insurance policy. Well, and you know, if you brought up hospice and palliative care, if they're able to keep us comfortable and have quality, uh, then then that's then that perhaps is really cool to to follow that path. But also, you know, our, our, I'm not, I'm sure you are familiar with Brittany Menard, who was 29 years old and had hospice and palliative care and had to move to Oregon, and and she just the quality of life was just not there for her. So she took the brave choice to do what was best for her. Um, and I, I really support um, choice. So you mentioned Final Exit Network. Tell us a little bit about that. Final Exit Network actually is, uh, in, in a sense, the successor to the Hemlock Society. And uh, people are a little bit long in the tooth, like me. We remember the Hemlock Society. My dad belonged to the Hemlock Society, and that was the original Right to Die organization uh, that championed the cause. Uh, it was started in uh, 1980 by uh, Derek Humphrey. And Hemlock Society uh, grew, and uh, of course, Derek wrote the book Final Exit, which is the do-it-yourself handbook, which is now in an umpteenth printing, and it's been a bestseller for decades. But um, in uh, 2003, uh, there was a kind of morphing or changing of the organization, and it evolved into end-of-life choices. And that... uh, it was a change that was not welcomed by everyone. And I think it originally started because people thought the term Hemlock Society wasn't a catchy, uh, uh, glitzy name. And so the end of life choices arose. And in 2004, a year later, Final Exit Network grew out of the original uh, starters or original thought of uh, the Hemlock Society. Uh, Derek and uh, Faye were instrumental in starting Final Exit Network. And interestingly, what we do, there are three national organizations, end-of-life choices. They're the big ones. They're the ones with the deep war chest. They're always asking for donations, which is fine. Their cause is primarily advocacy. They're the ones that are helping to push through uh, uh, medical aid and dying in state after state. Most recently, it was New Jersey and Maine last year. And there's a number more uh, that are on the horizon we hope will be successful. The second uh, major organization is the Death with Dignity National Center. They also advocate. They're smaller than end-of-life choices, and they're all about helping to get laws passed uh, at local levels, state levels. And the third organization is ours, which is Final Exit Network. And we also advocate, obviously, for uh, end-of-life issues and medical aid in dying. Uh, But we do something the other two organizations don't. And ironically, it's something that Hemlock used to do. Uh, Back in the day, Hemlock Society had a Caring Friends program, is what it was called. And those were trained folks who would go out and actually help people who were eligible and terminally ill and explain to them and how they can achieve a dignified death with or without a law that allows it. Of course, back in the day, there were no states that allowed it. But the Caring Friends program stopped. Uh, 
now hemlock became end of life choices and they just advocate and that's fine. Death with Dignity National Center, they advocate and they assist and that's good. But we have the exit guide program. And what Final Exit does is provide on the ground uh, knowledge and education to people who, well, let me let me tell you, use the uh, the mission statement if I Sure, will. please. Right, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, the vision that we have is that any competent person unbearably suffering an intractable medical condition has the option to die legally and peacefully. Now, the key part there is intractable medical condition. It doesn't say terminal. That's where we differ in our beliefs and our advocacy from the existing laws. There is no law in America currently that'll let you receive medical aid to die unless you're within a specified time of death, and that's usually six months prognosis. We don't have that uh, requisite. The mission, as I started to say, is to educate qualified individuals in practical, peaceful ways to end their lives, offer a compassionate bedside presence, and defend their right to choose. If, if, if you, Kimberly, have a, a situation that is intractable, and, and there's so many of those, it's like Parkinson's, ALS, pardon the phone there, I hope they don't leave a message. Um, <laughs> It's probably a robocall. <laughs> probably. <laughs> anyway, so um, you don't have to have terminal cancer. If, if, you, if you meet the, the qualifications uh, of our medical evaluation committee, and we look at everybody specifically, and you have Parkinson's or another disease that is, is unbearable for you, uh, we will come to you and we will explain to you how you might be able to achieve a peaceful exit using an inert gas and a hood and a regulator. And we can do everything except help you. We never do that. That, that would run afoul of laws in almost every state. But if, if you feel more comfortable to have us with you, we will sit and our exit guides are trained. These aren't people wow. who are just well, well-meaning and wishful thinking. They, they will sit with you and provide encouragement, and they'll help you plan. They'll help you think about the uh, legal ramifications, and they'll work with your family because none of this works well unless your family's on board. And there are some horror stories sure. about uh, there's there, you're, somebody's on the phone trying to plan their exit. The housekeeper's in the house, overhears the conversation, and calls the authorities because they think a suicide is being planned. And remember, this is not suicide. The, the psychiatric organizations, everyone agrees, suicide is, is, is for people who are having a, a temporary depression or problem, loss of a job, loss of a loved one. These are people, the people who choose their exit with dignity, they do so not because they want to die, they want to live, but they're going to die. So they're choosing it as, an, as, a, as a preferable option. Nobody wants to die. Not, not sure. anybody that's getting, going through Final Exit Network. But that's basically what, what we do. And uh, with the only time, ironically, that we've really made national news, uh, we have a relatively low profile, 
because we don't go bragging about what we're doing to the, everybody in the world. But there have been a couple of cases, one in Georgia, one in Minnesota, where local authorities have got wind of what we have done and tried to, you know, they have taken us to court. And it's resulted in headlines uh, for, you know, assisting a suicide, which we do not do. We educate and uh, we support. We don't help anyone to, to plan and uh, to take an exit. Well, the crazy thing is, and I shouldn't say crazy, but the the thing, the crazy thing that I did not know, I should say, is is that this is not a new subject. This is this is something that has been talked about and on the final uh, exit network uh, website. It, it, it went even far as far as nineteen oh seven, which is like, why is it why is it still a controversy? Um, and, and still a subject that people are uncomfortable in embracing um, because all we're talking about is choice. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's kind of mind boggling when you think about it. Um, I, I know when I went to school, there was a bestseller uh, when I went to college many years ago, I forget what it was on death. Oh, death and dying. Was that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross? It was. It was. Yeah. Sure was. And, and, and we're going, <laughs> wow, here's a book about, how we die and choosing death. And it was so revolutionary at the time. And let me see, that was 40 years ago. So 40 years later, we're still going, Hey, we should be able to talk about this. Duh. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Gosh. Yeah. It, it's, uh, it, it's, 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 you know, the crazy again, crazy is, is that we're all going to die. Um, and what I, and, like to stand on my soapbox and preach is, you know, how do we plan our end of life when we're healthy to not only die well, but live well? Um, Because if you know where you're going and you get everybody on board, um, and even though like your brother was uncomfortable, it was still really cool for him to hear your father say exactly what he wanted. And I believe that is the key to getting family on board, especially the immediate family when it comes to children. Because I can take you, Jay, and we can go to any hospital 20 miles in our direction and go to the ICU, and I can show you what prolonging death looks like. Um, and and so it's not that that we're a proponent for anything except choice. There are choices in the hospital that people make, and sometimes they don't have the conversation and they end up getting more treatment that prolongs the dying process Mm -hmm. versus something that is in their homes with loved ones beside them, holding their hand and totally supporting their choice. Mm -hmm. But here's the, here's the interesting part. You and I, you and I want choices, but we're sitting in a state that does not allow us to have this overwhelming choice. And so, you know, what do you think? Now, we live in North Carolina. What is the process of this happening in our own state and other states that are just trying to have some support when it comes to choice at end of life? Uh, I'm glad you asked that question. (laughs) There's an organization here. It was started and now it's headed by Ed Tiriakian, a retired investment banker. Uh, He lives up in Hillsboro, which is not too far away. And he started an organization called Dying Right North Carolina. We call it Dying Right NC. And his sole purpose 
is to get a medical aid in dying bill passed in the Tar Heel State, North Carolina. And believe me, it's an uphill struggle, even more so than some other states because we are such a red state. And in, in three prior legislative sessions, uh, Ed has succeeded in getting a bill uh, proffered. And the first time, the first two times, they had no Republican sponsors or co-sponsors. Last spring, a little over a year ago now, in uh, April, we succeeded in bringing a bill to the House floor. Now, not to the floor, but we got it filed for the third time. And that time, we, we actually had two important, influential Republican co-sponsors, Chuck McGrady and John Hardister. Wow. And main, the main sponsor was Pricey Harrison, a Democrat. Uh, she's been a sponsor on all of the prior bills. But last year, we got co-sponsorship by two very powerful Republicans. And we thought that was such uh, an achievement. Uh, so proud of Ed for the lobbying that he did. And, and I mean, he's actually going to the legislative building uh, many times, sitting down with legislators. And you know the saying, it's like sausage. If you saw how it was made, you wouldn't eat it. And if you saw how... <laughs> How laws came about, you'd be disgusted. But and and he tells the story about approaching many Republican uh, lawmakers who listened attentively and had a story about a loved one that had a terrible death, appreciated hospice, on and on. And they say we're all for it, but we're not going to say so in public. One of those things. And we we were real excited. We got it to the point where they were gonna authorize a study. That's a procedural step that all proposed legislation goes through, doesn't it? We're gonna do a study. And once you've passed that hurdle, you're on your way, maybe to actually getting hearings and maybe an actual vote. Within an hour after we learned that we were going to get a study authorized, Ed emailed back and said, no, we're dead in the water. You know why? Take a guess. I'm not going to say this with 100% certainty, but maybe 99.8. There was a call made from NC right to life to the House Speaker's aide, and that killed it right there. And uh, when I do speaking and uh, presentations and PowerPoints and meetings and things like that, I have one of my PowerPoint slides that shows a, a fetus that's a week or two old, okay? And then I have a picture of my father sitting out on the deck with some peanuts and a squirrel. And I said, right to life logic, fetus equals Sam Niver, who's dying and he's 77. And that's what we're up against. Wow. I'm not going to say anymore. Yeah, you, you know, I want you to know that however I can help, I love North Carolina. Uh, I I want our state to be leaders in something that I care passionately about because, you know, I too um, buried the love of my life. He was 30 years old with melanoma. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's those things that awakens you about, I want to die my way. And how do I get everyone comfortable that I love to support that? Mm-hmm. Um, it, it really is, it, it really is a, a tragedy that no matter what we do in the world today, it's not, it's not for everyone. 
and it's going to offend someone. But I want the individuals who's going to go through it and those who love that person to be the ultimate decision makers when it comes to, to medical aid and dying. So let me ask you, with, um, with everyone, I, I too have some contacts in the state, um, in the state house and, and Congress from uh, Wilmington, North Carolina. And so there might be some collaborations that we could possibly, um, you know, come together. And I do, I do know someone from Wilmington who just lost a spouse um, with an unexpected death that it, only a, a couple, maybe a year or so ago. So it might ring some bells um, for that individuals that could, could possibly be an advocate for us. But what are your hopes when it comes to North Carolina as well as the entire nation when it comes to providing choice for those who are facing a life-limited illness? Well, the simple answer is that obviously we'd like to have uh, legislation in all 50 states because that's what the said. It's not going to be a national matter like it was in Canada. You know, it was only like three years ago. They passed it nationally. Um, but that's that's the easy answer. The more difficult answer is that the existing laws, as much as they do give somebody a modicum of choice, we are finding that they're they're really inadequate. They're already outdated. Even the ones that are going to be passed this year or next are going to be outdated before they even get passed. And that is why I think as we, we kind of talked or thought about earlier, there's no uh, provision for dementia. And you and I can be of sound mind and we can put in our advanced directive. No, when I can't recognize my wife, I don't know what day it is. I don't know where I live. And I babble about uh, the color of the flowers. I want to be able That's to. That's not quality for you. No, it's not quality. And, but there's the, the, every single law it, it, with understandable reasoning requires that you have to be of sound mind. You can't be in a fit of depression or just out to lunch when you go and say, uh, you know, Dr. Paul, I want that, that prescription or I want that help because I'm going to die. Um, if you're not going to die, you're out of luck because there's that six-month time frame. Uh, and if you're not of sound mind, uh, you're not going to be able to write any uh, directive. Final Exit Network, FEN, is now in the midst of an initiative to set legal precedent where, uh, whereby if you sign our new special advance directive for dementia, and you go to a hospice or other care facility, and you request VSED, where it's written in your, your, your directive, and VSED stands for Voluntarily Stopping Eating and Drinking, and you're aware of that. That may have happened in your hospice sometimes. I don't know. It, yeah, I, sure. It, it, happens, it happens everywhere, right. you know, because and, anyone who's facing a you know, they're in intimate or in immediate death um, or close death, they, their body shuts down anyway. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they normally do not pass away with the diagnosis that's taking their life, but just their body shuts down and doesn't want food. And right. And that's, that's not the same as medical aid, where, whereas you get a, a prescription medicine. Okay. Uh, so that's a kind of passive way to die. Uh, in, in lieu of medical aid in dying. However, there are places that will still encourage uh, feeding because it is basic human care under many laws. 
just like providing a bed and warmth. And so there are people that have gone to a care setting and been denied the ability to stop eating and drinking, uh, regardless of what their advanced directive sent. Final Exit Network now has a new advanced directive. That's amazing. That, that, that we've, we've got a handful of people signed up. I'm going to write an article on one of them for the next issue of my magazine. Uh, and we, our intent is to challenge laws. We want to find a case where somebody has signed this, made their wishes clear, and gets denied the ability to stop eating and drinking. And then we are going to go to court with Rob Rebus, our uh, counsel, yes, and, and, and challenge it. And we want to set some legal precedent to make it stronger for people with dementia to be able to at least stop eating and drinking. Now, if we go farther than that, there will become a time, we hope, when people who have Alzheimer's or for whatever reason are not legally competent can still get aid to die if they've signed that directive in advance. That's another another whole horizon that, that wow. we have. To and then the, the other one, uh, the other second horizon is we've got to eliminate this terminal illness thing. Now, Final Exit Network doesn't care about that. You've got to meet a number of strict criteria. But even if you've got another possible five or six years to live, we will still educate you and support you if you want to die with dignity. None of the laws allow that. They wow. all have that time limit on them. Sure. And, and that is, if, if we could allow for dementia and eliminate the time limit under very strict circumstances, that's what I would like to see. But it ain't going to happen in my lifetime. Maybe you're... No, and you know what? You bring up a very good point. Um, for instance, another diagnosis that I see individuals struggle is ALS where they're in sound mind and body, but they're not able because they've lost function to carry out this individually. Um, mm -hmm. And who could linger for many, many and years. years. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I believe that, you know, there's, there's really a lot of foundation for us to launch into something that you're talking about, especially with dementia and ALS. Now you, you mentioned hospice. Um, so I feel that in the states that this that there is medical aid in dying and they're supported, they work very well with hospice and palliative care. But like our state, I've talked to a lot of hospices and worked for a hospice that says medical aid in dying, we're not touching it. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's like if you choose that, then you can't have hospice care. What is, what is your thoughts on that? Or do you see things evolving? Or is it still a sticky situation in the states that aren't moving forward as quickly as we should when it comes to choice at end of life? What, what, are, your, what are your thoughts on that? I am glad you asked me that. I, I should have been sharp enough to bring it up beforehand. One of the provisions in our bill, I say ours, Ed did most of the work, I did very little. Uh, one of the provisions that was in last session's proposed bill was that in order to be qualified to receive medical aid in dying, you first had to apply for hospice aid, either admission or at home, because you know hospice applies in. No other uh, bill, no other legislation in the country had that provision. You just we blew my mind. 
we we came up with that on our own because the vast majority of people who do get aid in dying are already involved with hospice, vast majority. So, and another thing is that in almost every state that I am aware of, there's a requirement for two physicians to sign off separately on your terminal prognosis. And that becomes a real problem, especially if in a rural state or a rural area of a state. It's hard enough to find one physician, let alone two. How far do you have to go? But hospice is is pretty much almost everywhere, not not in all the small towns, but here's the deal. If if you apply for uh, hospice aid, and, and, and whether you're accepted or not, they are going to sign off on your prognosis. They are going to be one of those prognoses because you can't go into hospice if you've got a good, long, healthy life to live. So That's right. in, in our legislation, the, the hospice application suffices as one uh, diagnosis. Then you have to get one from a physician. So you're only required to get that prognosis from one physician. Hospice is the other one. And here's wow. what's interesting and, and applies to you. We had to get hospice to go along with this. And there's some group called NC Hospice and Home Care Providers Association. I'm not sure of the term, but it encompasses everyone who gives home care or hospice care. Not hospices just per se, but others. And it's a statewide organization. They're in Raleigh. They're in North Raleigh. Ed Tiryakian and I went to meet with them. And darn, they had their, their, their council there, their board chair, their executive director, their top physician. I think there were six people uh, who met with us, and we told them about our legislation. And we said, you know, we don't want you to oppose us. We hope you'll be in favor of us. And we talked for well over an hour, and they did not oppose us. And they they, they were the ones that we talked to them about putting that requirement, a hospice application, in the legislation. And they supported that, and they told us how to word it. So wow. we, we work very well with them at that level. Now, of course, it's a moot point now. Uh, the bill never made it anywhere. But we set But you created for- those relationships. Yes. And you know what? We're, no one's going we're – we're all going to come back around. Um, you know, so it, it wasn't in vain. But still, that is a very important relationship. I know those guys over there. And I think this is an element that really excites me of inclusion. Um, right. So it really does. It really, it really makes me very excited uh, to hear that inclusion. So let me, so what, I mean, what, where do we go now? I mean, I mean, cause I mean, there's the final exit network people can visit. You have a newsletter letter. How can people find you um, in, in for more education, for more knowledge about this? Uh, I, I guess we should a movement. Well, I, I think that Final Exit Network is on your website, right? Yes, it is. When Can people click on that? Does it take them to our It goes right to your website, absolutely. Okay, okay. I, I would ask one other favor if I can. If sure. I send you the information on Dying Right North Carolina and Ed Tiriak, and in fact, I, I think, I'm sure I mentioned to Ed that I would be talking with you. I said, you need to know this woman. She's on board with the general end-of-life cause, and she happens to be right now in North Carolina. And so I'm, I'll send him a copy of this uh, if I can get it from you. Yeah, that'd and be great. Maybe you guys could talk for a future Absolutely. program. But, um, and the other thing is I will send you the link 
to my dad's uh, move. Well, you already have it because I sent it to you. If there's some way you can make that accessible through your website, then anybody I will, anybody I will who, totally try to do that. We can figure something out. All you got to do is put the link on there, and there I'll you send you a couple of a promo, like the the photo from the flyer or or, or please or grab or something. Because the the more people that can see that or any of this stuff is is great. I mean, it's so you're you're helping us a lot if you if you have a couple of links on there that people can absolutely go to find likes it network and uh, see the movie and that kind of stuff. So you know, my one thing that I'd li- like in closing is if you have someone that is totally against this whole medical aid and dying or final um, exit network. What would you ask them to lean into to learn more about family members and those who are requesting this choice to maybe see a different perspective? I mean, is it your movie? Because your father was very bold and very brave. Well, you know, it's, it's, I'm prejudiced, obviously, because it was my father and I made the movie, but, but it's hard to watch that particular case and come away angry and adamant with what the man did because he didn't hurt anybody else. And that's, it's like you say, it's a matter of choice. We're not telling anybody what they must do or not do. It's just, let's give people choices and let them decide for themselves, whatever's right for them. And, uh, and then the other thing is in talking with Val Lovelace at Death with Dignity, she, she spearheaded the, the movement up in Maine that was successful last year. I was in Maine when it passed. Oh, great. And so Ed and I were talking to Valerie and we said, you know, how do we handle these people who are so adamant and so opposed? And she said, frankly, don't spend a lot of time on because you're not going to get them to change their mind or you, they may not even be open-minded to listen to you. So, so just be, you know, be gentle and, and be polite and listen to them and hope they'll listen to you. But if they don't, don't get too discouraged. Well, you know, Jay, that's exactly why I created this podcast, Death by Design. Not everything and not every guest is going to be someone's cup of tea. But I ask people, listen, because A, it might change your mind. Two, embrace what does apply to you. Mm-hmm. Disregard what does not apply to you and design your own end of life choices by writing them down and having conversations. Mm-hmm. I don't know you or all my audience or listeners what, what's important to you. And that's why you must start talking about it. And mm-hmm. I, just like you, I do not want people to get to their a serious diagnosis that might perhaps end their life without this choice of somehow, can I control at least this? I can't control cancer. I can't control, you know, a heart disease. I can't control COPD, but I can get this prescription fulfilled, hoping that I won't use it, but knowing that it's there if I need it. So it is all about choices. And, you know, we're not, I'm not doing this podcast to introduce or to um, say this is right for everyone out there. I'm saying, listen, investigate, and realize that in a lot of states, there are choices. And Final Exit Network is there as a resource and an education and a process for those who are in states that just are not going to possibly ever pass um, laws to support choice at end of life. 
But mm-hmm. um, we know this is happening um, with outlaws, with laws, whatever. Um, and it is about choice. So, you know, what was really interesting about meeting your father, and I do say meeting him because I felt like I knew him through your documentary. Um, what is what is just so heartwarming is the man is still, and his message is still fully alive. Um, and that's that's what I want individuals and and. and and encourage them to watch this film because his passion um, with his love for your mom, his passion for his kids. Um, and then the ch- in all three of you kids coming together and hating that your father would not be there, but also supporting the, his decisions for the best quality of life. Um, and he's, he's a pistol too, man. He, he, he is, I loved he him. Yeah, he is. Yeah, but I just I thank you so much for what you're doing still on behalf of your father now possibly on behalf of yourself. This is why I'm in this because I want my family to have choices at end of life, and I really do applaud uh, Final X for Exit Network as as many other organizations out there. And please, North Carolina, no matter where I'm at, is always going to be my home state, and and maybe we can collectively um, move some stuff forward. Well, I'm, I'm going to share uh, this and everything uh, we've talked about with Ed at uh, Dying Right North Carolina and, of course, uh, Final Exit Network. Um, I'm privileged to be working with them, uh, very much so. And I'm privileged to, to do this with you. Thank you for well, I'm I am so thrilled that they're out there. And I happen to have met someone, um, someone who is, I think I was in Oregon when your name came up. And so it is a very small world. And how do we just um, continuing, uh, continuing to educate communities, local, rural cities, um, to make sure everyone is getting those choices at end of life. Jay, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks. And I'm Remember sure you. this is the, yeah, this is gonna be the beginning of, I, I believe a very long friendship, so. Just like in Casablanca. That's right. right. <laughs> That's exactly right. Thank you. Hey, I'm going to send you some follow-up uh, links and information and stuff. I look and, forward to it. And, uh, and I really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. We'll Good be luck. in touch. Stay Thank stay you. Home. Bye. Thanks for joining us today. And remember, you're the designer. This podcast is produced by Jason Andre with Seven Season Films. If you're interested in telling your story via podcast, Look him up. You can find him at sevenseasonfilms.com.